Man, I'm glad to be here. Glad to be back with you guys and be able to teach. And I'm glad to glad to know what I know and thankful for that. That you always open my eyes to see what I what I see. James chapter three and verse thirteen. We're going to read thirteen through eighteen. So here goes. Who is wise and understanding among you? He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and lie in defiance of the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we started going through these last few verses in the book of James, chapter 3. We discussed the two types of wisdom, one being heavenly and the other one being earthly. And we went all over the Bible in pretty good detail, kind of defining the difference between the two. We talked about Solomon and how great of a king he was and how Yahweh gave him wisdom and blessed him with all the riches of the world. We talked about how the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about him trying to trying wisdom and studying, studying it only to find it vain, wasting his time. And that's because the wisdom that he was trying to discover was an earthly wisdom. The wisdom that he was trying to understand was the wisdom of, of earthly things, everyday things. He was trying to put his hand on it and grasp, grasp, get a better understanding of those things. James says in verse 15 that such wisdom doesn't come down from above, but it's sensual and demonic. By the way, it's a common biblical thought that there are three things that hinder, that hinder a person's spiritual life. And the three things that hinder the life is, is the world. It's one hindrance to, to the spiritual walk. One self, your own person, is a hindrance to, to the spiritual walk and the devil. This lines up with what James says in verse 15. The world equals earthly. Self equals sensual. And the devil equals demonic. James point, James point, James's point is that this earthly wisdom is useless. It's driven by selfish motives. It's prompted by evil, and therefore it can't be from above or it can't be heavenly. Instead, it's earthly, and it must be demonic. However, we discussed a righteous wisdom also. We didn't just deal with the, with the earthly wisdom. We, we discussed one that is from above. James says in verse 17 that, this, that the wisdom from above is first pure, it's peace-loving, it's gentle, it's compliant, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's without favoritism and hypocrisy. We looked at several verses in the Bible about righteous wisdom. One of them that we looked at was Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of the Almighty. Jeremiah 10, and verse 12, it says, He made the earth by his, pow- by his power, and he established the world by his wisdom. And he spread out the heavens by his understanding. We cover several other verses like these. Scripture is full of verses about heavenly wisdom. We can't. We don't have time to go to all of them, but this is this is a recap. We discussed the search for wisdom and how no one has it but Yahweh. We talked about the miner that cuts into the mountain after fine gems and gold in the book of Job. He's so meticulous about his efforts, and there's a great reward when he finds them. But even as meticulous as he is, if if that same man searches for heavenly wisdom that way, 
he can't find it. It doesn't matter that he goes into the depths of the earth or goes into the deepest parts of the sea. He'll never find wisdom that way. Remember in Job 28 verse 14, it says, The oceans say it's not in me. Abaddon and death say in verse 22 that they've heard about it, but they don't know where it's at. So no matter how hard you search, you can't find it. It's not in a cave like fine gems. It's not something you can buy, but rather it's a gift from above. It's from Yahweh. <clears throat> to correct something that I said last time, a couple of people asked me about um, about Job after after I'd talked, and I think it was pretty interesting, some of the stuff on the the miner going in and leveling the, the uh, mountain and digging down into the cave and things like that. And I, I had brought it forth as, that uh, that the miner, when he struck the flint, we talked about it, I, thought, I can't remember exact, the exact verse, maybe like Job 28 and verse 9, but it says that he struck the flint and brought the mountains down at their foundation, or he leveled the mountains at their foundation. And I thought in some way that he might be talking about using dynamite or something like that, making a spark or something to, to bring the dynamite, some kind of explosive device. Afterwards, I was explaining this same theology I guess to my brother whom does not study the Bible at all and and I was reading it to him and I thought that I would kind of explain something to him he would get it and like it and and that would be interesting to him however he says well that's not the way I see that that don't sound right to me and I thought well (laughs) tell me what you think then he says well it sounds like when he strikes the flint he's using a hammer to strike to strike the rock and he's leveling the mountain at its foundations because he has to start at the bottom. And uh, it made all the sense in the world, and it makes a whole lot more sense than somebody having explosive devices, maybe at the time that, that Job was written. I'm not saying that it couldn't happen. I think you could read it either way, but if we uh, if we keep it in its context, it seems like that what my brother told me was a was a lot more, it fit, it fit a lot better than what I'd come up with in my own, own mind. So anyhow... That was just as a side note. I threw that in for free. You don't have to pay for that. But um, either way, I wanted to correct myself. If that's another understanding, I think it's a good one. So um, anyway, remember in the last two verses of Job 28, that's as man has searched for the wisdom in all the places, and all the magnificent picture is drawn of a man seeking extreme measures to find wisdom. Remember what verse 28 says. He said to mankind, look, the fear of Yahweh, that is wisdom. And to turn from evil, that's understanding. Search search for wisdom all you want. It's nowhere to be found. Solomon was probably the wisest man of all times. He's considered the wisest man. He definitely had the most resources of any man that's ever walked the face of the earth, and he, he searched for wisdom. Had a lot better understanding of things of nature probably than we did, the stars, the heavenly lights, things like that. He had all these understandings and yet he couldn't he couldn't find wisdom. It's 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 just a gift. And it has to be given by Yahweh. So we discovered that the heavenly wisdom is true wisdom and that it's another test of genuine salvation. That's what we figured out last week. And by the way, I hope you're catching what heavenly wisdom really is. It's not knowledge. It doesn't mean to have information or to possess knowledge. That's not wisdom. Possessing heavenly wisdom is applying knowledge by the power of Yahweh to reshape your life, to transform your attitude, to transform your behavior into righteousness. In other words, wisdom is not what you know, but rather it's how what you know is applied to how you live. 
So how you live according to wisdom is actually a gauge of your spiritual condition. How your wisdom plays out in your life is the test of genuine salvation. So that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. I just wanted to recap what we discussed last last time I talked. But this time I'd like to discuss the attributes of the heavenly wisdom in a saint's life and how you'll know whether or not you possess it or not. So let's read verses 17 through 18 again. We'll pick up there and finish out chapter 3. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay, the first attribute that James gives us is true wisdom about true wisdom, is that it's pure. What exactly does that mean? Well, it means just that. It means that it's undefiled, it's perfect, it's without blemish. The Greek word here is hagnos, and it's also used in 1 John in chapter 3 and verse 3, when it says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's the same, the same exact Greek word. It's also used in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Frankie quotes this verse all the time. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. That word pure is hagnos also, and it means the purest of purity. The word pure is the Greek word hagnos, meaning perfect and undefiled pure. So James says wisdom from above is first pure. Now, I think this has to do with the motive behind the believer. It's not a heart of pride, but rather a heart of purity, like it's talked about in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 through 27. Matthew, Frankie, and Jerry preached this whole sermon before I ever got up here. I'd had it wrote down, and I was shaking my head the whole time I was sitting back there. And I don't think that they did it on their own accord. I think that Yahweh does that. I just think he works. He works that way. But in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25 through 27, Matthew stated earlier, it talks about removing a heart of, heart of stone and placing a heart of flesh and causing people to walk in the ways of Yahweh. He puts this new heart inside a believer and he causes us to do it. And that's what's beautiful about it. It's not something we do. He makes us do it. He makes us walk in his ways. I believe that when the heart is made new, so are the motives. The motive of the believer then becomes pure. I was talking to Matthew about this yesterday. We talked about the regeneration and some other things, and I was telling him that I believe that a man is given a new heart, and that when he gives a new heart to a new creature, when Yahweh gives a new heart to a man, he becomes a new creature, a born-again believer, that his desire will change, and the things of this world won't control him anymore. But his desire will be for Yahweh, and he'll hate the things of the world, and he'll love the things of Yahweh. Some people have a problem with that. They ask the question, they ask this question, they say, well, why do we still sin? Even if, even if we've got a, heart, a new heart and Yahweh's the one that give it to us. Well, why do we still sin? The answer is this. He gives us a new heart, but it's held captive inside of an old body. That old body's full of worldly filth, wretchedness, and that's, that's, what, that's what contains that new heart. That new heart's beating inside and it's thriving with righteousness. And it wants to perfect what's on the outside with righteousness. But the outside encloses that pure heart. 
and that and the outside is just it's just wicked. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter seven that his body wages war with the spirit. The whole reason. Turn to Romans chapter seven. Let's look at that real quick. We'll start in verse thirteen. Romans chapter seven and verse thirteen. It says, "Therefore, did what is good cause my death? Absolutely not." On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am made out of flesh, sold into sin's power. For I do not understand what I'm doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. See, Paul's body and heart on the inside wants to do what's right, but his body restrains him from doing so. He says, and if I do what I, I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but it's, the, but it's sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me. My heart's right, but there is no ability to do so. My body won't let it take place. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it. If he does what is right, it's not his fleshly body doing it, but rather it's Yahweh working within him that makes him do what's right. I'm no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover the principle. When I want to do good, evil is with, it. Evil is with me. For in my inner self, I joyfully agree with Yahweh's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? I thank the Almighty through, the, through our Lord Yeshua. So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of Yahweh, but with my flesh to the law of sin. This is exactly what Paul was talking about. That heart that Yahweh gives us in the book of Ezekiel is the most precious gift that anybody could ever receive. The most precious gift. It's held captive by a fleshly body. But it, but we we have to we have to work on the body and let the, let what's on the inside come forth. Now, see, just because that new heart is pure, it doesn't mean that the carcass that surrounds it is pure. Our human flesh is sinful, but once we've received a new heart, then our motives can begin to be pure. And James tells us that this is where true wisdom begins. It's first pure. Number one, it's first pure. Secondly, he says that true wisdom is peace-loving and gentle. These two mean the same thing, but for my studies, this is one of the hardest Greek words to translate into English. But basically, it means it's humbly patient, or in a way, even to... Or in, or in a way, even to be persecuted with an attitude of humility. That's what it means to be peace-loving. One writer calls it sweet reasonableness, if that makes sense. In Matthew chapter 5, the Messiah says, and going through the Beatitudes, that the children of the kingdom possess this characteristic. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of Elohim. True wisdom is sweet reasonableness. It's peace-loving and gentle. Thirdly, James says that the true wisdom is compliant, which means it's willing to yield, not stubborn. 
Once again, that is, that's one of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the meek, are the, one who, are the ones who mourn. So heavenly wisdom is meek and is compliant. Fourthly, James tells us that the wisdom from above is full of mercy and is full of good fruits. Once again, another one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This doesn't just mean forgive those who forgive you. or have a, It means also to have a heart of compassion towards others. Reaching out to those in need, demonstrating kindness to those who are suffering. Good fruits, that means good deeds. We know what that means. The works that are produced by faith. This is also mentioned in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I'd mentioned at the beginning of teaching through the book of James, I think it may have been in the first and second sermon, I'm not sure, but the book of James is almost a commentary on the Beatitudes. It's the same thing. He's the, half, he's the half brother of our Lord and Savior. He knew exactly what he taught, and he understands what, what wisdom is and humility is and things like that. And Yeshua taught it in Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He taught the Beatitudes. And James, here he's just reiterating them in his epistle. Notice that all these characteristics are characteristics of kingdom citizens. All these people will be in the kingdom, and every... All the ones that are talked about in Matthew chapter 5 will be in the kingdom, and these are all characteristics that they'll possess. Humbleness, gentleness, meekness, kindness, things like that. Righteousness is good fruits. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9 through 11, Paul, it also talks about this in regards to growing in wisdom. Paul says to be found blameless and pure on the day of Christ, filled with fruit of righteousness that comes from Christ. So heavenly wisdom is merciful and it produces fruit of righteousness. And finally, the last two attributes in verse 17 says, Wisdom is without favoritism and hypocrisy. Without favoritism is not one-sided. It's honest and just across the board. It never wavers. We talked about this in James chapter 2. We talked about the man with the, the gold-fingered gold, gold hand, how he would come in and somebody would you know, set him aside and give him a special seat and things like that. That's, that's favoritism. True wisdom doesn't show favoritism. Without favoritism means it's consistent, if you will. It's without prejudice. It's not partial. It's, unwa- it's unwavering commitment. And last but not least, true wisdom is not hypocritical. It's true. It's sincere. It's not a mask. It's genuine. So heavenly wisdom shows no favoritism, and it's real. In other words, if you want to see what true wisdom looks like, you'll find it in a person who lives this kind of lifestyle with these kind of attributes, peaceable, gentle, righteous, without favoritism and hypocrisy. One author says this, and I quote, Christ is our wisdom, and since Christ is the embodiment of all those characteristics, talking about the characteristics mentioned here in James, since Christ is the embodiment of all those characteristics, when Christ takes his residence up in your life, those characteristics become yours and mine, end quote. In other words, Christ is all these things, so if he lives within us, then we too should possess these attributes of wisdom. So when a person claims true wisdom, and they exhibit motives that are consistent with that of Yeshua, like pure motives, peace motives, they're gentle, compliant, merciful to all those who are in need, they produce good fruits, not showing partiality, and being just and fair to all, not being hypocritical, but practicing what they know, well, then James says, then this person 
has true wisdom. Now verse 18. It says, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice how the fruit of righteousness is equated with true wisdom. It's because, like I said earlier, righteous living is wisdom. Remember the fear of Yahweh is wisdom in Job 28, verse 28. That's what it says, the fear of Yahweh is wisdom. If you fear Yahweh, you don't have any choice but to do what he says, and that's righteousness. So heavenly wisdom is shown by righteous living. And this fruit of righteousness is sown how? James tells us right here in verse 18 that it's sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the perfect example, Jerry, of sowing and reaping. Like I said, you preached the sermon before I got here. But uh, this is the perfect example of sowing and reaping. Notice that when righteousness is sown, it's just like any other kind of seed. It produces itself. You don't sow butter beans and pick okra. It doesn't work. You sow butter beans and you pick butter beans. That's what's going to grow. The same thing is true here. If you sow righteousness, then righteousness is what is produced. So righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Undoubtedly, righteousness grows best when it's sown in peace. Catch that at the end of verse 18. It says it's sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, it grows best in a peaceful environment. Righteousness grows best when it's delivered or given to somebody in peace, in humility, in a softness. It's going to grow the best. It's going to work the best. When you, when you try to share the scriptures with somebody, if you do it with a peaceful attitude, it will grow better than if you do some, something with a haughty attitude. I talked about that last time I talked. We, we get in debates and things like that, and it's fun to, to, I guess, show off your knowledge. You know, people have knowledge, and they want to show it off a little bit. So it's fun, in, in one sense, to get in a debate, maybe argue about what one verse means or something like that. But when it's done in discord, it's no good. It's no good. But if it's sown in peace, if it's sown not in an argumentative way, I, I even know that the people in the Bible, they, they argued about certain things. Paul talks about it. He says he argued for, for the kingdom's sake. He did it for righteousness. But it's, it goes so much further when it's sown in peace, when, when you argue in peace. When you, get a, when you get a plant from Pike's Nursery, it has a tag on it, and it says planting, you know, maybe it says planting full sun or, or planting partial shade. Well, that's what that plant needs to thrive. And James says what, this, what righteousness needs to, thr- to thrive and wisdom needs to thrive. It needs, to, it needs peace. It needs to be sown in peace. I think this is talking about those who aren't, cons- at the end of this, when it says it, it says it needs to be sown in peace by those who make peace, I think it's talking about those who aren't concerned with themselves and their selfish ambition. These are the people who make peace. They're not worried about what they look like. They're not worried about what you think they know. They're not worried about those kind of things, but rather they're worried, they're worried about the, the wisdom of Yahweh to edify those who they're sharing it with. These are the people that sow in peace. This is, this is very rare. Most people that have wisdom, they don't speak peacefully. They, they're usually real haughty. When I say wisdom, when they have knowledge, not wisdom. When they have knowledge, they usually speak haughty. When they have wisdom, they don't have any choice but to speak in peace. That's what true heavenly wisdom is. Well, you don't you don't argue with somebody to get a point across. You don't you don't just beat them over the head with it and get rude with them. Instead, you 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 find ways to be peaceable about it, and and then it plants, and then it grows. You know, this is the soil that we should plant wisdom in. 
So heavenly wisdom is revealed in the way we live, when we fear Him, when we love Him, when we obey Him. The result will be will be a pure heart, a humble heart, one that produces peacemaking, righteous deeds. And when those deeds are sown in peace, they will reproduce in peace and be reaped for the kingdom's sake. So in conclusion, we have two kinds of wisdom. One is an earthly wisdom, and its origin is earthly. It's demonic. And the other one is a heavenly wisdom, and its origin is Yahweh. One is good and one is bad, and the one that is to be desired, of course, is the heavenly wisdom. But as we've discovered, the kind of wisdom is only given by Yahweh, right? He gives us a new heart, which in turn, which in turn gives, us a, gives the believer a new desire. The pure desire excludes things like envy, selfish ambition, and jealousy, but rather it includes things like peacefulness, gentleness, mercy, righteousness, fairness, sincerity. These all being fruits of a new creature. One with a heart that can be molded and shaped into something beautiful. This creature will exhibit integrity and strength in Yahweh through faith in His Son. He will apply all these attributes that James gives us to his life, and his life will result in a fruit-bearing, works-evident life that is full of love for his mighty one and for his neighbor. And in turn, he will sow this righteousness with every kind of word and kind act to all that Yahweh has prepared to receive it. So as you're sitting here today, ask yourself if you have a heavenly wisdom. And if you're honest, you might say, well, I have some of those attributes, but not all of them. Well, if that's the case, then I'd encourage you to ask for the rest. Ask for heavenly wisdom. Remember in James chapter 1 and verse 5, James says this, But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask Yahweh, who gives it to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given unto him. So pray for wisdom and a new heart. Ask Yahweh to change your heart and to give you desire that is synonymous with His. Beg Him for knowledge to do what is right, to show you the way to be meek and compliant, gentle, and full of mercy. If you're sincere, He'll hear and He'll answer. And if the true desire of your heart is to be like His Son, He knows that. So call out to Him and ask Him for wisdom. And when you receive it, sow it in peace so that it might multiply around you. Let's stand and close in prayer. Yahweh, Father, thank you for this day. And thank you for your, your Sabbath day's rest. And Father, I thank you for your love and your compassion and your mercy. Yahweh, you've been more than good to us. Father, I pray for, for the wisdom of your wisdom to be granted to this congregation now, Father. And I pray that you would give us the meekness and the gentleness and the humbleness to, to share it with other people. Father, that we may sow in peace, like James says here, Father, that what what grows will grow in peace and it would be real and it would be pure and it would be holy and righteous from you. Father, we love you so much. We know that we only stand here forgiven because of the works of your Son. Father, and that your, that your plan that, that you designed before the world began, that it come true, Father, and come to pass, we know that that's the only reason we can stand here justified before you today, Father, and so we give you praise for that. I'm so thankful for it. Father, I pray that you'd make us as a body, you'd make us more like Him. That we would walk in His ways, act as He acted, and live, to, live as He lived. Father, we give you all the praise and honor and glory for every good thing that's ever come our way. And that we realize that we're nothing without you. Father, I love you and I ask all these things in your precious and holy Son's name. Amen.